Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I want to ask you about The Last Dragon, but before I ask that, I wanted to ask you about how you got into the business, and what was that movie you were talking about? What was the Japanese film you were in, and how did you get into that as a first role? That's a five-hour conversation, but uh, basically, I actually was going to be a poli-sci major, but I had seen, like, uh, they would bring the public theater around, um, Joe Pass Public Theater to the neighborhoods, and I was getting interested in theater. You know, when they brought him around to the housing projects, I was in a working class area. I said, geez, I, I saw people like uh, James L. Jones, Cleavon Little, uh, all, all live. And uh, I think the other man I saw was incredible. Uh, it was in the John Wayne movie, Brown. Oh, God, he was great. So I was starting to get the bug. And my brother was going to Hop Street University. My brother saw me in a high school play and said, this is what you're going to do. I said, no, 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 I'm going to be a I'm going to be a congressman or something. I, I said, I can do it for fun. And one day, my brother, Buttle, who we did a bu- uh, we did six movies together, he played the dad in Goodfellas. He's playing with the Jets. So my dad and I go out to see him. So I'll, I'll make this as brief as possible. Basically, he ambushes me with uh, two people from the drama department, the top actress in the country at the time uh, in college, one whatever top actress and, and one of the heads of the department. And I'm sitting there, and they give me this pitch about a drama core. And I'm going, yeah, right, that's what I'll do. I'll be with 50, uh, you know, drama, come on, you know, from, like, uh, fame, you know, performing arts. So I sat there, I was polite, and they told me about it, and I said, I'll just be a poli-sci major and uh, do a play every now and then. My brother says, hey, schmuck, they have no one like you. No one sounds like you. No one looks like you. <laughs> that gets into drama. <laughs> At that time, you know, we're talking late 60s, early 70s, he says, he said, if you're any good, you're going to get a scholarship. Well, sure enough, I was very fortunate, and I got a, uh, I took the minimum amount of credits and got a, a scholarship and uh, stayed four more years, did musicals, did everything, even walked on and played football and did these things and did a couple of interesting things for a while, and these friends of mine conned me into doing a summer theater. I said, nah. I'm going to take a couple of years off, do this. Maybe I'll join this or leave this. And and we're married in 1972 years later. I wound up staying two summers at that summer stock theater. Two years later, we're married. And 
I'm working every job. I tried to actually go out and play football. I went in this minor league team, and then which I'm writing a script about. <laughs> Hopefully, do a slap shot story. And 1977, I'm standing there going, "Hey, I had a scholarship deal. What am I doing? I'm making like a hundred and quarter a week working at a gym." And I said, "I got to find a way to get in the business. <laughs> How do you get in the business? Because I had a, a baby. I had a daughter. I should say that." I'm sorry I'm making it so long. And I just said, I said, okay, let me see what I'll do. So I had friends at Hopster. Gary Epstein became an agent. You just, uh, it's crazy, crazy. I mean, uh, Max Nell, who was a Jet Super Bowl player, was trying to help me uh, get a shot at football. And one day I said, there's a movie, Semi-Tough, which I didn't get in, Semi-Tough. But I said, can you get me? He goes, why? You an actor? I said, I'm a lot better actor than a football player. He said, what the hell are you doing? I almost died. My spleen almost exploded on a flight after a Dolphin game. He said, come here. He sent me to an agent, former Met on Chamsky and restless soul Cynthia Ragland. So I started going out and I got a couple of commercials. I got me in and I started doing a lot of theater. Dan Laurier from the Wonder Years put me in a play. I got seen. I uh, got Lou Dijamo, the casting director, saw me and I got in the movie Cruising, the controversial movie. And they were searching for this guy. They wanted a big guy. I even had to gain weight to do the movie. They wanted a big guy. It was about Commodore Perry, the first Americans into Japan. Well, they went looking for me through old connections. Our champs, because I remember he worked at a gym. All these characters, ex-cops working there, said, what do you want with Mike Starr? The guy said, I'm an ex-basketball player. This other guy came. I'm a manager now. We want to put him in a movie. So I get this movie called The Bushido Blade. And they said, you got to gain weight, lift weights, take acting classes. Because I always, I always liked film, but I decided to do theater. And all of a sudden, like, I'm a different person. You know, I hadn't done any film. So, <laughs> so Bushido Blade was my first film. They put me on a horse. They said, you just have to sit on it. I was going down cliffs, following action stars like Sonny Chiba. <laughs> And I got this big red hair. I'm weighing about 300 pounds. It was, it was hysterical. I mean, and the stories I had, there was magic. And then I have a two-year-old at the time. And I tried to, I had all these days off in Kyoto. And my wife had been born on American Air Base in England. And there was problems getting the passport. My wife was very young at the time. And uh, uh, I, I, they couldn't come over until I was in Tokyo. And I said, Oh, I promise someday we're going to return to Kyoto. So a few months later, my wife says, you know, I mean, a few months ago, my wife says, you know, there's a conference in Kyoto, Japan. And she takes me to Japan. So Bushido Blade had the famous, I don't know, you know, if you would know who this is, but he had a big effect on the film. Well, James Earl Jones, of course, was in it. I got to tell him I wrote a paper on him and he inspired me. But Richard Boone, who was a great character actor, and he changed a lot of TV, played a character on Have Gun, Will Travel, and this and that, one of the last black and white TV shows. And that's another story. Because he had a big influence. I spent time with him. And I came back. I thought I was going to be a star in L.A. <laughs> I'm living in Queens in the projects. And uh, well, when the film comes out, and uh, well, guess what? <laughs> We had our own private premiere when it came on a local TV three years later, two, three years later. They, the neighborhood bought through a, a big party for me. <laughs> That's about as much as I saw it, you know? And uh, so that was the Bushido Blade. And 
I'd love to meet you sometime and tell you all the crazy things that happened. But it was magical experience. There was a great actor, Mako Iwamatsu, who was born in Kyoto, actually, and grew up in the States. And he was nominated for an Academy Award. I don't know if he won Sand Pebbles. Supporting actor. So I turned to him one day in Japan and said, so how does this business work, uh, Mako? I, I just go to L.A. and I become a star when this comes out? Because I don't <laughs> He said, man, I hope so. He was like a street guy. He was great. He was also a great painter. He said to me, I hope so, but you know, I got nominated for an Academy Award two weeks later. I was cutting trees in L.A. <laughs> in my tree business. So <laughs> I kind of found out the hard way. And, uh, you know, the other thing, too, was that I always loved film. And when I got into this drama department, I was like... Um, I was like the guy who had no experience and I wasn't a, a mobster or anything like that. I was just a blue collar guy, this mixed up uh, New York, Boston accent, you know, a little Boston from Massachusetts from my dad and relatives. And here I am with these people with all this training and I had done very little, you know, just quick thing in high school and whatnot and talent shows. And a woman from the group theater, which was very famous at the time, like from the thirties or forties was the, became the chairwoman of uh, Miriam Tulin. Dr. Tulin was my mentor. And she put me up in front of the class and said, uh, this man, this young man here, I could send him because she directed live TV. I mean, that's, I'm going back in time. I know, I'm sorry. But she said, uh, but that's part of this interview, right? <laughs> Just tell me to shut up when I'm talking too much. She said, I could put him in the film business right now. He's what they call a natural. You know, I hadn't heard those terms. But he wants to do this, so we're going to teach him how to do theater. The funny thing was that I had to adjust back to you know, when I saw myself one day on screen. I was taking this commercial class for ten dollars a class. I said, "Holy shit, what the hell am I doing?" And I had to go back and learn, you know. So uh, I got on that movie Cruising with uh, William Friedkin. It was a very controversial film, and I worked with Joe Spinell and and. Uh, William Friedkin just came up to me one day and gave me this lecture because there were demonstrations and there were this. He says, listen, you're a Zen warrior. Nothing else exists here. There is nothing else here. And you're Spencer Tracy, man. There's nothing to do. Just be Spencer Tracy. <laughs> and, you know, people have called crazy things, but I have to say it was like the, hopefully the uh, light went on, you know, as they say, and they went, uh-huh. And I'm not saying I've always been faithful to it, but uh, whenever I stick to that, it seems like uh, in most films, that's what works. We've been doing this show for going on five years now, and I think you might be the person that we have brought up the most because you've been in at least really? five episodes, uh, five movies that we've talked about over the years. Really? Yeah. You call yeah, me anytime. Did... I'd love to talk. You sound so nice. I love talking to you. Well, excellent. I'm hoping that we can do an Ed Wood show one of these days. Oh, that would be the best. I have great stories about that. That's That was really a tremendous experience. My kids have not, my daughters didn't forgive me, at least for three different times Johnny Depp would give me the phone, his phone number or uh, he'd leave it at a place in New York like someone, oh, do you know Mike Starr? You know, they'd say, you know, Mike, yeah, please tell me, call me. I used to have this attitude, probably still do, like didn't Jim Carrey would give me a number. I I don't know, I called it housing project mentality or whatever. I didn't, I know guys, and I'm not saying, you know, they're political or they're wrong, and people would say I'm a politician or it's friendly, but it's funny. I, for some reason, 
don't want people that, you know, uh, if I can call it that level, I don't want them to think I want anything from them. So I'm funny about, I'm shy about like, uh, staying in touch with them. It's crazy. I know it. Then I'm um, hopefully I've gotten over that in the last couple of years. Cause people would say, Hey, give me a call, you know? And I just, I don't, it's funny. I have a, you know, I still have, you know, I have friends in the business that do well and this and that. It's just, uh, but Johnny Depp was really the light. He was, you could see then, you know, I mean, just everything, all good things about him and Tim Burton. I wound up working on a couple of other films. And I got that from, no, I got that film. I guess this is a conversation for another time, but I was doing something called Cabin Boy. I don't know if you know Cabin Boy. We covered Cabin Boy once, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Those guys wrote for Letterman, and Tim Burton, Tim Burton loved the show that Chris Elliott did, uh, Get a Life, was it? Something Chris Elliott's the best. What happened was they just, they told me that Tim Burton said, can you write something? And they said, we've never written a movie. And they just came up with kind of a takeoff on Captain's Courageous, they said, or whatever, you know. And and uh, <laughs> and I just, I, I, uh, I, I, here I was playing this giant. And what happened was Adam, one of the authors, said, you know, we love your stories. He wanted to put out Letterman, too, you know, as a guest. And this, again, I was getting shy about it. I don't know what the heck I was thinking. But, uh, uh because I see how I talk now, but I just said, ah, another time, you know, but, right. uh, Adam said, you know, Tim's doing a movie. You'd be perfect for now. You hear that. I can't tell you how many times in the business. So you'd be great in this. or Oh, we should have put you in that. Or, you know, I've got a part for you. And you go, oh, you know, you try to politely say, yeah, oh, you're going to come back and do this, but it does happen. And sure enough, Tim Burton came on the set one day. And I remember meeting this gigantic thing of posse. He weighs about 80 pounds. And he was just like this. And he was so nice. He came up and Adam said, this is the fellow I told you about, Mike. He just looked at me and nodded. He says, no, he'd be great as uh, Georgie Weiss, the producer. He goes, yeah, yeah, he would be. Yeah, yeah. And you think, what the heck? <laughs> I wound up doing like that and a couple other productions that he was involved in. You know, and it was great. James and the Giant Peach, just with Henry Selleck uh, directing. It's just it, uh, that was a, that was a nice. Edward was really a nice experience. We covered Free Jack, and I know you're listed in there, but I'm having a hell of a oh, time God. remembering where you're at. No, you know, and I never got residuals from it, and I tried to, and I didn't know how to appeal it. Uh, you know, you have to be recognized in the movie, and you just hear my voice, and I, I was gonna fight and go to the union about it because I'll never forget running into. Uh, I'm trying to think of this actor's name, but running into this fellow in Santa Monica. I'll never forget what's his name. That was the name of the movie. And I ran into him and he, uh, I said, yeah, geez, did you want to get any residuals? He goes, oh yeah. I said, huh, that's weird. I hadn't seen the movie. Then I see the movie on TV and there's a scene and I was completely eliminated. There's a scene where uh, we, I'm with these people who are, what they were the jackers or taking the bodies or whatever. And a right. car blows up, and we go take. So you just briefly hear my voice go, "Yeah, go get him." But I was completely cut out. I think you might have seen my face for a couple of seconds, and I was going to try to send a clip of it, and I didn't know how to do that, and I just kind of let it go. And I remember my other daughter got me one of these double VCRs that you could edit, and I was going to try to do that, but I just, uh, geez, I wonder if I still have a case. <laughs> yeah, they wish me in free jack. That was, um, 
I remember Mick Jagger walking by me. That's all I remember. And uh, it was one of the first films they did in Atlanta. And Emilio Escobar was a star who was a really nice part. I wound up, he directed me on a CSI New York. But Free Jack, <clears throat> I remember the, um, it was this crazy, wild Australian director, cowboy hat, he wore one of those big, long coats and everything, like a duster. And I had just, I think I had just done the bodyguard or whatever, this and that. So I, I was learning more and more about special effects and people like, and, and things and how to ask and how to deal with stunts. So the special effects guy said, okay, here's what's going to happen. This is going to go on fire. It's going to blow up. Just come do this and that. I have a hose in the back and I'll shoot out and put it out. I said, okay. So I said, um, he said, but if it doesn't work, you know, don't go there. And I said, okay, what will I know? How will I know when to go? You know, I talked right with the special effects guy with the director there. And you've got, it's me and local people who were extras in it, you know, who had never been on film sets and were trying to break into this, whatever, you know, God bless you, you know, to, but they, you know, they were new to it. And the reason I'm telling you that is one of these assistant directors, I'm sitting there and I'm watching everything. And another thing I learned from Kevin Costa is doing everything by the numbers, one, two, which paid off in like, I actually did a cowboy movie, a shootout. He would pace everything out. I would watch him and I would... I talk to myself, okay, car crashes, turns on fire, hose comes out and puts out the fire. Well, the hose uh, just harmlessly shot the wrong way. And I said, oh, not going out there. And it's some assistant director, something that he, I don't know if he's a head guy, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but basically went, go. I said, no, 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 it didn't go out. He goes, no, go, go. And I basically, I think, said, no, fuck you, you go, or something like that, you know. And then, you know, because we were hiding in safety, like almost like in a trench. And then finally, he grabbed this guy, this exorcist, just get out there. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Go. And the guy didn't know what to do. He started running. And I grabbed him by the collar. I pulled him back. I said, stay where you are. We're not going anywhere. And sure enough, they, they finally, the thing just flamed out. I was flaming and they called cut. And <laughs> I told the guy, I said, you realize what you did? But, oh, no, that was all right. You know, and I went to the director, the Australian director said, you know, he wanted us to, he says, well, something's go wrong sometime, right? He's laughing. And I said, you know, <laughs> he wanted us to run out. He goes, no way. And he just laughed. I went, okay, well, it's not going to happen while I'm here at least. So. So that's my only free jack story. And you hear my voice go, okay, let's get them, you know, and 
I guess it wasn't enough to be. I wasn't in the credits, was I? I know that you're on IMDb for sure. It's on my IMDb, yeah. Oh, but, God. you know, I know how accurate that can be, too. Oh, God. They have me in things that I never did that I might have done a video for. And then they don't have other things. And then, rest his soul, Mike, the Mike star of the rock music, they had me dead. I think they had me on Celebrity Rehab. The poor guy was uh, uh, battling right. heroin addiction. I remember those stories think, when they uh, came out. I was like, wait, Mike Starr isn't on heroin? Yeah. Oh, people. Yeah, I know. They had me all sorts of things going on, you know? Oh, that's terrible. You talked a little bit about cruising. We did a nice episode on that. We also did one on um, Black Dynamite. Oh, you know, some of the people with discipline, I love Michael Jai White. I met him one time, and they said, Mike wants you to do something. I said, sure, why not? This is a low-budget film. I had the time of my life, but, you know, you just have so much you can be in the movie. But I know Michael said, oh, this is so funny. When I did this running away scene, like right out of the movies where I'm shooting over my shoulder and running clumsily and this and that, and he was dying. And everybody said, oh, that's going to be one of the funniest scenes in the movie. Then we did this whole other scene with... Uh, politicians, uh, the actor saying that he was, and it was all cut out because I guess they needed more room for the whole Nixon scene at the, you know, and, uh, and, uh, fights, uh, Roger, who's so brilliant who I'd worked before. He did the, uh, Chinese American guy was, was doing a big fight with him. So we had a scene, Richard Edson, where I, I do a magic act, uh, and I saw him in half the guy, and I go, da-da, he dies. He goes, hey, boss, what are you doing? You know how to do this, right? And there were these young ladies all hanging around me, and uh, they they just cut it out. I mean, this one young lady, I didn't know what was going to happen because she had a bathrobe all the time. They went action. She walked out of the pool naked, and I went, whoa, what's going on here? You know, we had to do this. I did the women to a Jerry Lewis. They are. And I believe I actually ran into, I was with my family somewhere in Orange County at the restaurant. She said she was a real estate person. She's very nice. And, but geez, we had these, you know, there were models and I think or whatever, but there were scenes cut out. At least I got some quick stuff in it, but, and I was in headlines, but there was this huge scene where I, I, you know, I said, what are we going to do with this guy? I want him dead, you know, and, uh, they put that in, but there was a whole scene where the guy, my guy screws up and I said, Hey, come on, I'm going to show you a magic act and like blood shooting out of the you know, out of the box, and he's screaming, and I cut him in half, you know? And I go, ta-da! And everybody was hysterical, but it never made the film. I have been, had scenes cut out that people, everyone on the set loved, but somehow didn't make the movie for various reasons, I find out, whatever, you know. A lot of actors have those stories, and you're fortunate the ones that get in, you know? You show up in just such a brief appearance, but you're always so appreciative. Especially in something like Goodfellas. I mean, you know, you know oh, Nighttime great. Day Man, whatever. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I that, wish there was more of you in that one. You know, in Goodfellas, um, Scorsese would ask me to ad lib all the time, and that was, that scene was one, you know, and it had to be so quick and this and that, and the way he edited it. But I had lived, so, he asked me to ad lib something in the wedding scene, and my mm-hmm. brother played the dad, and he said, Martin Scorsese is laughing so hard back there, and he kept asking me to go. I was at living. And Thelma told me, oh, Marty wanted to lead that whole thing you did in the wedding. But when you see the movie, especially, uh, you see how we edited it, it was like a second too long, two seconds. And she said to me, Marty has this down. It made like three final cuts. He wanted to put it in. It was so funny. And um, 
she said, but when you see the film, you'll understand why, um, you know, because when you see the editing, and when I went to this reunion, I said, oh, yeah. But I would have done a quicker ad lib if I would have known at the time. But uh, he asked me to abuse um, Maury's, uh, Chuck Lowe uh, played Maury, Maury, the bookmaker, his, his bad toupee. So I had a whole bunch of bad toupee jokes. But I just took my time and... I I said, uh, now, a lot of people wouldn't get this, but they would get it eventually. I said, hey, Maury, where'd you get that rug from? The looms of Mohawk? Now, I can explain that. <laughs> Just like I explain all my ad-libs in the, the other scene. Scorsese, he used, to, he used to get the biggest kick out of all my trivia. He'd test me on the set. And goes, I bet Mike Starr knows this, you know, and he'd laugh so hard. I would know the song from the movie. I'd just be lucky, you know. He thought I was the film trivia master, you know, and he'd ask out loud. And there's only a few actors. I remember turning to Sam Jackson one day. I said, you realize in this room of like 30 of us, that you and I are the only people I've ever been on a stage from maybe film before. <laughs> 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 we were laughing in this one scene. The Looms of Mohawk. Bob Barker, who did um, The Price is Right, he used to have a show in the 60s, and I always tried to do everything to the period, you know, the time period. That's why everything I had lived in that, I tried to make right when I was doing that. There's a, another ad lib I throw in the Lufthansa Heist, I'll tell you about. But I always try to, uh, you know, I'm a fanatic about ad living and the right period, the right time, and Try not to use, I'm not saying I'm always except, try, I, I go crazy when I hear slang that's in the wrong period, you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, a broad example would be if it was 50 years ago, someone saying, hey, it is what it is. Well, no, you know, people didn't say that. <laughs> you know, that's, I'm just giving a broad example. So I tried to do, someone gave me the credit for starting the expression totally. <laughs> I said totally untraceable, but I wasn't trying to do talk. Oh, totally, yeah, man. You know, I was just saying it was because it was a fact. It was totally untraceable. The looms of Mohawk, uh, Bob, was it Bob Barker who was in, um, you know, the um, Adam Sandler movie when he, you know, he he hits him right. Well, he had a show, Truth to Consequences, and there was different different prizes they would give as consolation prizes, and they had this Mohawk carpets. And they would sold rugs, and they said, now from the looms, meaning, you know, the, the carpet looms, from the looms of Mohawk. So I did that. I mean, I could have done quick once, but Scorsese was laughing so hard. I said, you want me to give you another one? He goes, no, no, no. And he'd yell out. My brother said he would yell out to Aaron Lena, the producer. He'd say, oh, did you hear that? Did you hear what Mike Starr said? And I, my brother was, like, going crazy. He'd come over to me. He goes, Standing, he's going nuts by the video. He just keeps wanting you to say more, you know. So because they came <laughs> down, you know. So I had experience. They all didn't make the uh, film, but I had experience. I mean, we were on those like six, seven weeks. So I would walk around being something like there was one in the Lufthansa heist, which a lot of people think that Frenchie had uh, engineered. No, he was just part of it. A lot of people stopped me. And go, you're Frenchie. You did the Lufthansa heist. Well, he was one of them involved. Uh, uh, Bobby Frenchie McMahon. It's funny when you actually play a person that lived and then you see pictures of them dead or whatever. You see them with their family or arrested. It's really, I've only had a few experiences like that, but um, then run into someone years later. Oh, I was friends with him and this and that, you know, but 
uh, I was told by a detective on the set, way you know that he was a vibrant, fun guy, and that's why I did that. And he had a great sense of humor. He just loved being a thief, and it was so easy in those days in the airports. And he was a cargo supervisor. So in the Lufthansa heist, Scorsese started to shot on me playing that bowling game, you know, with the puck. And I just, he said, say whatever you want. So I just went, Louisiana Lightning, right? And then uh, the fellow with me, Clint Kassar, said Louisiana Guts, but it was just a really quick thing. And I had to tell people what the hell I was saying because I did it really quick and I shot it. And the love contest heist was 78. I'm not a Yankee fan, but Ron Guidry was 25-3 and three that year, and the Yankees won the World Series. And his nickname was Louisiana Lightning. So I figured that would be a good New York ad lib, but if people get it, they get it, but it's a good way to open the scene. And it was the exact period because it was December of 78, as I remember. And um, I did stuff like that. And the other scene that you actually see me talk this and that, I walked in one day on the set. Scorsese calls me in and says, listen, I want you to talk to Bob, you know, Robert De Niro. So I said, I want you to talk to Bob about the scene tomorrow. I think that was the day I actually got to observe. One day I did observe the famous funny like a clown scene. You knew there was something great going on when you watch stuff like that, Joe Pesci, you know? And Robert De Niro, I had met before, and he calls me in, and he just started asking me questions, you know, like, uh, not like, uh, oh, how do you act, or this and that. No, he just, he had this great way of, uh, there's a way of making you look smart or something, <laughs> you look good, you know what I mean? Like, said, so what do you think? Do we know each other? Do we know? And I had done my reading, and actually talked to this detective and sent him over to De Niro, you know, said, hey, you know, you should talk to him. He knows a lot about Jimmy Burke. He worked these cases. And this fellow became somewhat famous later on. But also Frank Silvero, who played uh, Frankie Carbone, he was a friend of De Niro's. He was in Godfather too. He was the only one. Scorsese was specific. No Italian ad-libs or anything, but he would ask Frank to ad-lib in Sicilian, you know, like when he was taking out with the coat. So, one night I was with rest of soul Charlie Scorsese, Charles, his dad. I didn't even know it was his dad at the time, and Frank Silvero. And we were just talking, and they were telling great stories. At one point, Frank Silvero said, how are you going to talk in this movie? And I told this story to De Niro. How are you going to talk? How are you going to be here? And, you know, it's like, geez, what am I going to say? I'm going to say, act for him, you know? I didn't understand what he was doing. I had someone do that to me once, like, hey, let me hear your accent or whatever, you know. So I said, what do you mean, Frank? He goes, well, I just want to tell you, the way you are here, talking here, it's just the way he was. And that was a big clue between that and Lou, the detective, telling me he would do things like he'd walk up to someone and say, hey, you still fucking your wife? The guy would go, what? He goes, here, give her this, and he'd give a diamond ring. He was just this crazy, fun guy. So I had the answers on the test, as my friend Coach Barry Russell would say, <laughs> I had the answers on the test, so I felt very, very comfortable. Um, and on top of it, here's De Niro making me feel super comfortable. Robert De Niro saying who I would work with later on again, fortunately, a couple of times. But he said to me, so what do you think? And I said, well, I don't want to act like one of those authorities. I mean, I know a little about I, you know, the neighborhood and the area, but I heard this. And then I told him the Frank Silvera story, and then he laughed. I imitated Frank. And... And then I said, well, this fellow said this, and I guess this guy was just a, a fun thief. With, he really enjoyed himself. So 
so um, I said, you know, we discussed a little, and he goes, oh, cool, cool, you're great. And he was so great. And then when we got to the set, I don't think I've ever experienced anything like this before or after. Martin Scorsese cleared the set, and, uh, oh, I first walked in, and I said, I saw the script, and it said, I can get past all the alarms, Frenchie says. Now, I don't know if that was the same day or the day before, get past all the alarms. Now, that night, the night before, I reread chapter four or whatever about the air heist, and I had talked to the detective, I talked to Frank, and now I was fortunate enough to be able to sit down and talk with Robert De Niro about our relationship, the characters' relationships. You know, nothing heavy. I don't mean to sound like uh, he was asking me who, you know, who, what was he like with his mother. I just know the, the reality of their relationship. And he really, he gives you that respect and credit. If he, if he respects you, it sounds like, you know, he just really, you know, after I just saw working with him. You know, he just makes you feel so at ease and he's so supportive. So I said to Scorsese, you know, here I am. Again, I, I said, excuse me, Marty. He goes, yeah, what's the matter, Mike? You know, Nick's a great guy, Nick Pelleggi. I know he wrote the book, and he wrote the he wrote the script. He goes, yeah, what's the matter? I said, well, you see, this is the year franchise. He goes, yeah. I said, well, and I wound up saying the line that scene. You know, it was beautiful. The beauty of it was, and I was just talking like that. I said, the beauty of it was that there were no alarms. He goes, okay, say whatever you know about it. You just say whatever you know, Mike. You go in. So I, that's why I walked in like I was shot out of a cannon. Piece of cake, you know, too good to be true. I just said what I felt this guy would say and my rhythms and it, you know, it's too good to be true. People would say that. So we sat down, Scorsese had cleared the set and Ray and Robert De Niro, Ray Leota and Robert De Niro and myself and no one else. And we just sat there and he said, okay, let's try to work this out, you know? And I may be remembering this wrong, but I seem to think that Ralph De Niro said, every time I tell you to be more quiet, get more excited or something like that. I, and I, I just want to give him so much credit because of what he, he was. He was so great. And uh, they, at one point, I was just this wealth of information. You know, I just had it memorized. Everything I said that Monday was a Jewish holiday, that was true. It was air France. It was money from tourists and servicemen. And that's why I said it's totally untraceable. So if you read the chapter in the book, because Scorsese said there's no way we can put this in the whole film. I didn't got it. It's, it's a real fun scene. But again, the story wasn't about Frenchie, you know, but it was really funny how they got it, you know, and the whole, you reread this thing. And I knew that, that there was a famous cheap motel nearby there, the JD's, you know, so... I had to try to jam everything in a couple of minutes. So the guy, when we did it, um, Ray and Scorsese said to me, Ray's got to get some information in. And Ray just very polite. said, I just need to get that in, leave me a space. I said, oh, sure. You know, so I say, uh, he says security, you know, when he first said security, the first time, I think, or when he asked about it, there was this little guy that they, they wound up stealing the key from them. They get a hooker and all this stuff, but they they duplicate the keys. It's really funny, but the guy, they broke into his apartment, and he had all this porno, and he was a kind of a wannabe military guy, so he liked Frenchie because Frenchie was the air cargo supervisor. So they had, like, one security guard, so that's why uh, I said, oh, no, no, it's not a square, but whatever I said. So, and and uh, Leota throws in, yeah, he's a real citizen. So... <laughs> 
you know, something like that. He throws a line. It's happened so quick. And finally, the nurse says, yeah, but what, what about the security? And that's when I said, security, you're looking at it. Because I was the, he worked at night. And so that's how he robbed me. He says, I'm the midnight. So I just threw out on the midnight tape, man. And then I made up again. I'm the commandant. Now that, I think I saved. What happened was then Martin Scorsese, they brought in department heads, cinematographer, the gaffer, you know, just to see what he wanted to do. And he shot it with two cameras. I tried to tell directors this later on, you know, politely tell them, because he put them at 45-degree angles. And actually, Dustin Hoffman asked me how he shot it when I was working with him on Billy Bathgate. And I told him, he says, that's really interesting. I said, well, what happened was he didn't have to turn around, come around. He had it from both sides so that you didn't have to remember, you didn't lose any um, organic or surprise improvs or ad-libs, you know what I mean? Right. You know, because I've seen it happen where they, where they turn the camera around and the actor may not remember to say all those things. You know, and you're standing there with what you think is gold, Jerry, like he said on Jerry Cycle and Steve Hyder says, it's gold, Jerry, that's gold, comedy gold. And you're going, oh, shit, what happened? But, uh, uh, we did that, and finally I went, I'm the commandant. <laughs> and on uh, the midnight, I'm the commandant. So after he goes, cut, he goes, Mike, commandant? I said, it's 1968, Hogan's Heroes. I, I met a, there was a producer, a money person, a woman came up to me at the Goodfellas reunion and said, I said, you know what commandant comes to It was in Hogan's Heroes. I said, you're the only person that ever got there. I said to him, it's Hogan's Heroes. That generation, it was the height of the Vietnam War, that generation grew up with, um, with, uh, and 68 grew up with World War II movies, like Starlock 17, where there'd be a, always a German commandant, you know? You know, like the head of the prison, you know, like Get a, The Great Escape with Steve McQueen, things like that, you know? So I, said, I almost said hair commandant. So I just said that, and he goes, I love it, Mike, keep it in. So that's where that came from. It was interesting, the response being in the theater was really warming. I mean, it happened so fast, but, you know, when you're the actor watching it, but uh, it, the response in the theater when I came on, that was really nice. And, you know, and people laughing, yelling out Midnight to Eight Man and Commandant, you know. It's funny, it was all ad-lib, but it was all hopefully organic and true to the book. And Nicholas Pelleggi was just really, he's just so great. He, he's got to be like the most humble character, you know, he's he just... He at the said I said, Boy, thanks for making me look as soon as you kidding me. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You made up stuff. You made me look good or whatever. You know, it's just, it's just like really, really cool and. Scorsese one time, <laughs> actually, you know, because I guess people think he's a cerebral guy that sits on a throne somewhere or whatever. They have different images of him sitting there. Well, I mean, he's very observant, obviously, and sits there and is very perceptive and watching, but his sense of humor, uh, we just had a relationship, I guess maybe I was lucky because he liked my sense of humor and uh, my knowledge of just trivia and comedy from way back when. I'd throw out a line and he would do it to me. But he walked by, 
one time he said, I don't know, silly me. Let me look at the script for a change. <laughs> Why don't we go to the script? And he just laughed. You know, he looked at me. Maybe I'll look at the script, silly me. So he had that, we had that kind of relationship on Goodfellas. Ed Wood, I'll tell you something. Tim Burton came in one time. And if you can picture him, it was almost like a puppet. He came flying out of another great segue, right? He came flying out of uh, the room. He goes, Mike Starr, Mike Starr, you know. And whatever we, when we were doing one of the scenes, Johnny and I, I think maybe with the posters and this and that. He goes, Mike? I go, yes, sir. And I, I get up and he comes walking in, like flying in. He goes, I said, yes, Tim, what? He goes, ah, no, 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 you're, you're good. You know what you're doing. Just do what you're doing and runs away. That was the only direction I got from Tim Burton. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and we've got great conversations. And I believe Vincent Price died while he was doing it. And that was one of his idols. And he became friends with him. He was just really an interesting, cl- classy person. And, and Johnny Depp, I mean, he just, you know, he, couldn't do enough to make you look good. And he, he was so respectful. We had these great talks. And, and one day, Tim Burton came up to Johnny Depp. I mean, now you, it's like people would not believe this story, especially at the time, because they had some image of Johnny Depp as a whatever. Man, but I don't know what people thought. He'd come up and he'd say, you know, guys, we're moving pretty fast. Is there any chance we can do um, the scene, uh, tomorrow's scenes this afternoon? So fortunately, I I probably got this practice from theater or old school guys. I if I was on a film six weeks or three, uh, it could be um, three months. I was always uh, I guess because a lot of times character guys will be uh, can be what they call a cover set. If it rains, you got to be available to come in. So I memorize the whole script, you know, and just keep on top of it. And then the day before, hopefully, or two days before, work on the scene we're going to do. So I knew the scene. So he said, is it okay? And Johnny Depp looked at me, is that all right with you, Mike? I mean, that was the kind of person he was. And, and he says, you think we can? I said, I said, easily. We can work on it at lunchtime. And we did. And we, we shot the scene. How do you say his name? Is it? I always mix him up with uh, the other writer, Kazarowski, because the, oh, the, yeah, yeah. the screenwriter, Kaczynski, yeah. is it? I'm trying to remember. I should know that. I'm that Polish. That's where Star comes from. Yazda. But I remember we talked... We talked um, about it, and his script was like 147 pages, so you know things got cut, like a lot of dynamite people had to get cut because it really was uh, long trip. But there was, for me, things that got cut were like things like, <laughs> we were in a, uh, a movie theater, you know, in a screening room, and he had the Buffalo Stampede, which makes a movie, by the way. Right. But he, I'm sitting there with my, and we were all in the movie, you know, the screening room. The, I'm the producer. What the hell is this? And, <laughs> oh, I've got a buffalo. Why is there a buffalo stand? So, you know, it wasn't essential for the film. And later on, you see a buffalo stampede in his movies. But things like that got cut, you know. But it was really right. I mean, like, he kept in shoot whatever belonging he want. I made really, it was really important that I, uh, when he first walks in, I say, uh, I really wanted to do a real New York accent. And uh, I said, Oregon. You know, I, 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 uh, and, and Johnny Depp, you know, kind of improv something with me. Like he comes in, I wave him to come in, and I'm looking at the map. <laughs> and he kind of uh, went along with me, like, Oregon. You know, I said, and uh, what's that one up there? Oh, Oregon. Yeah, you know, I pre sold the movie, or I say to him, 
well, screw you, you know, and that was so much fun, that movie. The, people quote that movie, and it's all his lighting, you know, the screen lights, but and I mean, I didn't add lit or anything, and we did the stuff like, yeah, those perverted elk, well, that shit, you know, you got to post a fuck no, but we got, and it's interesting what people like, you know, different people like in films, and it's interesting, and I don't want to make this self-serving, but like, you know, you get some parts in the room, I'm going to do a dialect, I'm going to do this, and and I'm really going to act, and I'm going to work on this whole character. And then something like, <laughs> Georgie Weiss, where I just felt, I know this guy, I'm going to eat a pastrami sandwich and say it, you know, and just do his, you know, New York, and just as if I was in there. This, I, I've seen these characters, you know. And it, it, be in the business, and also, uh, you know, or writers like yourself and interviews, and, you know, uh, I'm not sure what else you do in the business. I don't want to be rude to you. I'm just saying that it'd be interesting that someone who enjoys film would say to me, geez, I loved you in that movie. And John Lithgow was doing third rock from the sun. And it was like the first season. And I was living in New York and, and he gave a clip that would of me. He said, this is the guy that should play that character, the neighbor. And they flew me out. They watched it. And it's really funny. So I had done a Broadway show with uh, John great on the road, but, you know, it just uh, Requiem for a Heavyweight. They did a revival of that, and it was he's so great. And he just put me in, and it was from that scene. So, you know, it's funny because sometimes the simplest stuff or the stuff that you don't think that much about, you know what I mean, or going to some, you know, big depth about, sometimes those are the things that come off the best. <laughs> you just relax and just let it go. I got in the, I had replaced Brad Garrett, left the odd couple. He just wanted to do it a few months, I guess. And Nathan Lane had recommended me. I was very lucky. All of a sudden I'm doing the odd couple and I learned the show in five days. And it was really a challenge because I hadn't been on, I hadn't been on stage in so many years. Fellas like the actor Rob Bartlett um, uh, would say, you know, when you relax, it's just perfect. And Joe, uh, the, the director, I'm sorry, he's a big Tony Award winning director. Joe would come up to me, you know, check it out. He says, Mike, He's just a neighborhood guy who's playing Murray the Cop. He said, when you do that, it's perfect. And it took me a while to trust that and not go for a big comedy, you know? So sometimes that, that happens in acting, you know? The big thing about Goodfellas was that the environment was so perfect that it was just, I just went, you know? It was, let's say, hey, let's play music. <laughs> what was it like working with Harold Ramis on The Ice Harvest? Oh, man, I miss Harold. I, you know, I'm sorry that I didn't get to see him before he passed away. I just... I had come so close to working with him a couple of times and he was great. And, uh, Harold was like one of the really good humans too. Not only super talents, but he's one of those guys that was a, a humanitarian and caring about people and respectful, you know? And, uh, I got to know Billy Bob on that. And John Cusack's a friend of mine. And John Cusack is the type of guy that people, you know, he may be like shy and quiet with people, and, you know, people may get offended by that. You know what I mean? Like, you know, uh, because he may not be gregarious in a, in a large public thing. But he would do things like make sure that he was out of the way because it was my close-up of this. And now he says, oh, we got to do that again. Let me tell Harold, you know, or I was blocking you and my fault, you know. That's the type of guy John was to work. So him and Harold had a good relationship. You know what I mean? It's not like I'm saying John was director of the film, but Harold really... Not only did he have great cinematic sensibilities, but look at the either SCTV he came out of. So 
I don't want to take total credit for this, but that scene in the box, I, uh, when I'm, well, there's a lot of scenes in the box, right? He, Harold came up to me and said, Mike, I don't want to, you know, he didn't want to offend me, you know, because actors, they want to be seen. He says, I really think it will work better when you finally come out of the box if we put you in the shadows the whole time in the box. He said, I said, we'll hear your voice. Then it'll be in the back of your head at the urinal with this and this mysterious character. So you wouldn't have as much screen time face to face. You know what I mean? He said, but I think, and he was so right. He was so right. The one thing I might take a little credit was when I threatened when I get this, I'm going to kill you when I get out of this box. I said, accuse X character, I'll get you and this and that, you know, and, and Billy Bob called that great lines, pay no attention to the man in the box. I think he might have had one, but I can't remember. <laughs> but I, I said, I'll kill you, I'll do this and that, right? So finally, whatever it is, I say to John's character, I say, uh, no, listen, we can work this out, whatever. And Cusack says to me, says to me, you just said you were going to kill me. <laughs> so I asked Harold, can I try something? Can I just do a big pause and a, and a, like a weak, lame response. It's <laughs> let me hear. <laughs> so he, he goes, you just said, I'm like, I'll get out. Blah, 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 you know, and then, hey, come on. I'm sorry. He says, you said you're going to kill me. I just took like a beat or two. And I went, I didn't mean it. <laughs> Something like that. I didn't mean it. And Harold just lost it. He just said, yeah. Now I, to this day, I couldn't tell you if it was totally his idea. It was us together, my idea, but it was just, he was just so cool to work with. That was such a nice experience. I think it's one of the most underrated films out there. And John Lyons from uh, uh, the producer, John, said to me, it did tremendously in sales and video, whatever they call it now, DVD sales. And uh, really, it came out, I think, around Thanksgiving, I think, around there, whatever it was. But boy, there was one, you know, out of a plaque. I mean, it's just every one after another performances, you know, the people in that, that was a cool story from, and I, and he said to me, Harold said, listen, I don't need you to do, I said, you want me to do bio? And he says, no, no, you can be just this mysterious New York character. Who's looking for him on the, you know, but the author, the author wrote books. He gave me his, uh, another one of his books, but he wrote these books, uh, specifically dealing with Kansas, you know, so that's why Wichita Falls. <laughs> we all, how many of us say that in the film? Wichita Falls and Falls or Wichita, whatever I forget. And then I have to read it as graffiti at the urinal. And that's that's interesting. I'm I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because God, I feel bad that I didn't get to see him before he passed away. I didn't realize how sick he was. And you know, he was in Chicago. And when I, by the time I asked, they said, "Oh, he's in rough shape. I, he had terrible disease." But he was like. I kind of cared about people, you know, in every way, you know, overall, everything. He was just really good to people, you know, and respectful. But what a talent, huh? It's funny you asked about him. Well, that was another one that we covered on the show. We absolutely love that movie. So. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I'm really glad that uh, it was like West Chicago when we did those quarry scenes that looked like uh, Kansas. They were these rock quarries. And... <laughs> And uh, I met John originally through my friend Donnie Cruz, who owns this famous place, Stanley's uh, uh, Restaurant Bar and uh, Stanley's Tap Room, and Chris Terrios through Donnie. So they came to the set, and actually John and uh, 
from the Cubs. They would, John would ride these electric bicycles all of a sudden when they first came out. And they'd ride around Chicago. So <laughs> Chris Chelios visited the set one night. I didn't realize he rode right through a shot <laughs> on a bicycle. Chris Chelios, the hockey player. And we were laughing so hard. But Chris was making fun of me because one night he was just watching us, you know, and him and John are very close. And, you know, um, uh, places out in Malibu near each other. And they, and they, he, Chris is a great guy. Well, one night I, I think it was the scene where John was trying to tell me, uh, John was saying, make sure you get in this shot. You know, that's the type of things that are very important. You know what I mean? To a character actor, you know, when the star really makes sure this is, there are stars who go the other way. <laughs> I was warned about it many years ago in the theater and film, but, uh, by the old timers that I said, nah, that doesn't happen. So the funny thing was what Andrew was is real important. It was probably like, you know, the reveal out of the box and this and that one take Hal said, I want you to keep your head down. Whatever I did. The one thing I forgot is I came up and I was so mad at myself. It went cut. And before he could say anything, so I went, sorry, Hal, sorry, sir. I kept, I was so upset. About, so I get a little, uh, extreme sometimes, you know, I, I mean, I don't smash things. I mean, I might in the past have hit a table or something, said, ah, oh, damn it. You know, I only get mad at myself, not other people. Right. But, uh, if I screw up something, so I went, Oh, sorry, sir. Sorry, Al. Sorry. Well, Chris Chelios, look, I was so funny. He was making fun of me later on, you know, and they were all doing going, Sorry, sir. Sorry. Sorry, so he rides the bicycle through the set by mistake, and they went, we're filming, it's a take. And he went, sorry, Hal, sorry. They said, who is that? They said, that's the great hockey player, Chris Jellios. He's my friend, John said. said okay. And he was, uh, I mean, he, I, I think Billy Bob Thornton felt dwarfed by him, you know, in the sense of, you know, because Billy Bob is a, an outrageous character, but he looked at him. Gary Bob was the greatest. He was just, he's just such an interesting guy. He was telling bad Santa stories to me and everything, you know. See, I'm getting to a point uh, where uh, the last couple of years, and, and I do, this is not, again, not an ego thing, but I kind of, my behavior and everything have a youthful way so that they, I'm starting to get to the point where they're making me the boss or the, the captain or whatever, you know, or the head guy, you know what I mean? And whatever side, you know, of uh, the law or whatever. And I could see where John would want to do that. Cause John, um, God, he's just very special. I mean, you think of the stuff he did with the Cohen brothers and uh, he, if you know, crime story at all, he was, that was his first big thing oh, yeah. before he came out. Cause He's such a believable, and I believe he had lost a lot of weight, so that could change things. That that changes things, too, when they're looking to have that guy, you know, um, you know that you walk in. Because there are times when my weight fluctuates, and they'd say, Keith, well, you're not much of a character. I want to leave me on my back. Find that same mug. The business has really, oh, God, I'm really going to sound like one of the old timers here, but I was told this recently, that the business has changed a lot, where especially the blockbuster films or the, the big films, they want a, a couple of names, you know, this and that. So that's why you wind up doing these independent films going to do something. Or you try to get on TV and to make the money because it'll be a few or the latest names and this and that. Whereas in the past, 
I, and even the Coen brothers said this a long time ago. About, I mean, they said, you know, in the 40s, you had that whole system where they just grabbed the character actors and, and put you in films. I mean, people like Carrie Morgan came out of that, I believe. You know, you, you look at some film noir and you see all these people that, wow, oh, he, he was in that, he was in that, you know. And now, a lot of times, he'll, you know, I don't know, put an X whatever in it or something like this or that or you know, oh, the, no, this guy's on a TV show, or, or, uh, oh no, no one knows this guy. We're going to use him. So that that might happen to some people. You know, it, you got to keep redefining yourself too and be fluid. But I think there's, I don't think there's the same, the 70s especially uh, with film, the same, if I can put it this way, respect for character actors. Uh, my friend Johnny C., a stuntman who acts to John Chenetiempo, he said to me, look at The Godfather. Look at the people in that. And Godfather 1 and 2, could they make that movie now? Would they make that movie the same way? You look at the people, the character actors they had in that. Forget about you know, the stars, but the characters they had in that. I mean, the, the people who weren't box office names, they were just so solid. <laughs> you know? And so believable, and just about every one of them was a veteran actor, you know. So it it seems to be a change in films now, I guess, you know. And I don't know, you know, I don't want to sound like it, it has no bitterness. It doesn't. It doesn't bother me. I just flow along, and uh, I'm going to be working on Ed Burns' new show, and he's the type of person who likes yeah, his show, Public Morals, and I play in it. I, I've got the opportunity from him to play a very interesting character. Um, and that, and my friend uh, Paul Bernard's producer, they just, you know, when people know you, say, wait, this this would be cool. And Ed Burns didn't know me personally, but do of work. And then when we started working personally, he really, he's one of those guys if uh, you know, I don't mean you've got to kiss someone's ass and be their entourage. He's not like that at all. But he, you know, when he respects you, he just gives you more to do. And uh, he's very easy to work with. And he's like writing, directing, producing it, you know, so... That it was a really cool situation. I did a couple of episodes of that, and hopefully it'll be successful. And uh, from my point of view, also hopefully uh, you know go back, you know. But uh, but I just do whatever's interesting. I mean, I, there's a couple of indie films, and you know you hope to strike gold. We were just uh, I did a film with uh, Malcolm McDowell and Jane Seymour. We did this film called Bereave that just uh, Giovanni Angelos won the. Uh, the best director at the Hoboken Film Festival. It's very interesting. And I got to play an interesting character. Yeah, I really, I went, I saw the film, and I said, wow, this really came out nice. Now, I think they finally got it distributed. But a lot of these films, I talked to distributors, they said, oh, the best thing is to go right to Netflix. Don't even try to get it in the theaters. It costs too much for the publicity and everything else. And, you know, it's how I said, they're better off. People nowadays, they're viewing at home. So, it, it seems like most of these films you have to put in some big theater. Um, I mean, I saw a film Adrian Brody did, Detached, Marsha Gay Hahn, about a substitute teacher in the public schools in Queens. It, I thought it was brilliant. And it was at the Tribeca Film Festival, and it's now on flights. You know, it's really, I mean, they're, everyone's excellent, but you don't get that distribution. I don't know, unless maybe someone sees something or someone, you know, and just... Uh, it doesn't seem to go to big theaters, you know. Uh, I try to go, like in Chicago, there's a great place that shows indie films that I never see getting shown anywhere else. Where you go, the music box? 
Oh, the music box is where uh, John did his I Couldn't Make It to Chicago. You know the music box, huh? Oh, yeah. You know, I was yeah. talking about there used to be facets, right? But that was a, a video store that I learned from a, a Quebec uh, a cardiologist resident that when we were living in Chicago came over the house and told me about it. But they would have their own little viewing areas that had every type of film you could think from around the world. But um, on diversity, it's another reason to see. You know, I'm talking Diversi and Clark. Right. And a lot of films you don't get to see. I went to see The Trip Part 2, you know, like <laughs> Steve Coogan. Did you see The Trip when they do the Michael Caine? And Is that the best? Yes. Oh, God. Well, they, they take it to Italy. So I, I'd have to go there to see the movie. And I have a friend, Teddy, Teddy G's, we call him. He, and he'll just say, come on, I just I haven't seen this one yet. I'll be in Chicago and I'll just... He'll recommend something to me. Or he'll look on uh, Rotten Tomatoes or something. He'll say, Come on, we're going to go see this film. We're going to go see this. And that's how I've seen movies. My friend Donnie or something like that would see. I'll say, Jews. I saw, I know Vince Vaughn did a version of it. I didn't see it, but I saw the movie Starbuck about the guy who fathered 580 kids or something like that. I know Vince, well, I saw the original French Canadian one there. Yeah. And it's, it's absolutely brilliant. It's so good, you know, the sperm donor. You know, I, I didn't see, I worked with Vince. I didn't get to see that one. I don't know how it went and how, how it was, but I'm just saying that you see films like that you don't expect to see. And character actors you knew that were working a lot, and all of a sudden you see them show up in uh, an indie film. And I had things there, you know. And, and it's not really, because they'll have like big first-run movies. It's funny. It's not just the... You know, you know, Clark and Diversity, it's, I guess it's considered Lincoln, but I think it's a Century, Wrigleyville. Century Center, yes. I think it is. Yes, exactly. There's a Bally's or whenever now it's a 24 hour, I mean, an LA fitness there, you know. So did you live in Chicago? No, I'm over in Detroit, but I could try to get over to Chicago and Toronto. Where did you live there? Oh, yeah. Oh, Toronto, I love too. God, I'd like to get another job there. My brother used to live up in Canada, but, uh, he lives in Vancouver, I shouldn't say. He used to live in Toronto. And uh, I did these two TV movies with uh, Gene Wilder that they were trying to make a franchise. And it's one of the best experiences I've ever had. I mean, I couldn't wait to get to the set. He did this murder in a small town and the lady in question. And the women he had, like Cherry, oh, Cherry Jones, uh, the woman from Six Feet Under. Uh, he had so many people that were... You know, he gave opportunities to a uh, German actress who had been in Fast Finder films. He really had some tremendous cast and the stories he was writing. He was writing these Agatha Christie ones. They wanted him to do a weekly. He didn't feel we could do, you know, he didn't feel he could keep the quality up. So we were try he was trying to do like it every six months and certain things happened. And it just, the money pulled out, but it was such, I put a 1938 detective, his best friend, and he played a, theater director who had such great powers of observation <laughs> that I would call him in to just watch when I would talk to a suspect or someone or ask him help. You know, it was a very clever idea he had. And he, he wrote the Agatha Christie style uh, mysteries. And it was really great. We did those up in Toronto, but uh, Toronto is a very cool city. Very nice. Uh, it has been, I used to go up there before I was even in the business. I had friends. I, I don't know if you're a sports fan when I mentioned Chris Sheldon, but he was playing in, I think he's still playing. And what he did was he, that was the year that the Detroit should have won. I thought the Stanley cup against, they lost to Pittsburgh. So that's, um, I 
so that's what, five, six years ago? I'm trying to remember, and maybe more. But I was, oh, God, I was living in Jersey. We weren't even out here yet. So it was, uh, it was a pretty well-done film. A lot of people liked it. And Vinnie Jones was in it, but uh, it was a British actor who was great. It's the Irish. He was born in uh, Northern Ireland. He was great. Ray Stevenson, I, I don't know what he's up to now, but he was getting all these offers while he was doing it. And I learned a lot from him just in a lot of ways. And he and Vince D'Onofrio will go out of their way to say, how come Mike Starr's not in this scene? Or play the scene to me. <laughs> and Vinnie Jones would, you know, it was very interesting, you know. And uh, we, that, it was, uh, I, I thought, the, you know, the film did pretty well. But it was a, an interesting story. You know, people that, you know, people would come up and tell you stories or people, you know, that I knew, you know, got a friend of mine from Ireland knew, went to a wedding of the, you know, the daughters or our daughters or the grandchildren, I forget, but who would know them. And I, you know, people would tell me stories because I knew nothing about this. It was, uh, I think the early seventies. I mean, we did little shots that was supposed to be the fifties and the sixties, but there were like 35 or 36 bombings in Cleveland, you know, these mob bombings of each other, you know, and they were trying to kill him. It was a very interesting story to get a chance to see it. Detroit, I enjoyed being there. You know, I had done a film with Jay Leno, Jay Leno, Pat Morita. Yeah, and Randy Tex Cobb. We did a week up there. We did a big bowling alley fight scene downtown Detroit. But it was a big deal for me. I'll never forget. I took my son on the trip. When I got the first trip he got to take, and he thought it was far away. It was the last year for the, what was the Tigers Stadium? And it was the year they won. And they oh, were just like incredible that year. 84. And I got to, I said, come on, we're going to go to a game. Instead of, I should have just said, come on, we're going, you know. And I had access, and we were right down the street. And he said, no, I don't want to go. Yeah, he was very young. At the time, it was like his first trip I took him. I think he was, he was 84. God, he was like six, five or six. And I, I took him on the trip with me. And uh, it was, you know, he, it was really his first time on a set and all that stuff. It was very cool. But, uh, yeah, they had a great team. They started off like something like 35 and 8. <laughs> something ridiculous. They had a great team. And, uh that's when I was the first in Detroit. Uh, no, I shouldn't say that. I, I had done Perry pharmacies, all these commercials. Uh, I used to do uh, local commercials. They'd fly me out. So I did a few times I was in Detroit. But I got to, you know, you have people there that are really trying to make it happen in the city, you know. I try to uh, really, uh, you know, uh, frequent those places, whether it was a breakfast place or something, and and there, there was, everywhere you looked, hung or something was shooting. Everywhere you looked, there was film crews. Dumb and Dumber, obviously one of the, the roles that you probably get recognized for a lot. Sure. Um, speaking sure, of, a lot home, of fun. Hometown Boy, we've got Jeff Daniels in there and Jim Carrey. Oh, the greatest. They, they are so different in their acting styles, or at least the films that they were doing before. Fascinating, right? Yeah, and then yeah. they got you in the middle. What's that like? <laughs> Jim was always animated, right? And Jeff was always low-keyed. And I spent separate times, I'm not saying they didn't get along, I'm saying that for some reason I had said, so my time with Jim would be like, you know, if we did something, he would be like, you know, he's doing something. And Jeff would be very low-keyed. Jeff was uh, with his theater. He was actually, he would like be very low-keyed on the set. And I'd catch him like relaxing with his eyes closed and it'd just be me and him sitting there. And I would go into this fake camera speak just to 
You know, I said, okay, how are you catching me? You shooting me with a 60 here? What do you got me on a cowboy medium close-up? And just nonsense. I would talk gibberish because he would have his eyes closed with his face against the window. You know, just not, you know, not that he wasn't friendly and warm. He'd be sitting there. This is the way I broke the ice with him. I would do that. And finally, he'd go, what the fuck are you talking about? Shut the fuck up. And he'd start laughing. And he was writing this script. And I would do an imitation of a stunt coordinator talking, you know, I would do this, okay, my guy right here, you set your camera at a 45 degree angle, I'll catch the gig, and he's coming down here, and my guy be on the bike coming up, and he would love it. So he was writing a funny script, and he just wanted me to do stuntman talk. So I gave him some little things, and he was really, uh, he was interested. We had some nice talks. i tell you when he came to life was, um, and I don't mean that he was ever dead, it's just that he'd be low-key, but Boy, the Farrelly brothers were such hockey nuts. Bobby Farrelly had played goalie at uh, RPI, uh, and he was a backup to this fellow who was, oh, God, I'll go up on his name, too, who was coaching at the time. Fascinating guy. He coached a few uh, NHL teams, and he was coaching the Sharks. Great guy. And he came on the set, and, boy, they started talking hockey, and Jeff was just going, what the hell was Detroit thinking? You know, like this and that. That's what he would really get passionate, talking about sports and hockey. And then also really cool, to, you know, when he was telling me about his Purple Rose theater, you know. And he's really, and then Jim would have other stories, you know. And Jim would do Sinatra for me or whatever or tell and break my balls and do funny things and talk about his childhood. So, but between them, you know, when they had to work, it just seemed magic. You know, you, you knew you were on something funny. But with... uh like the most annoying sound. I can't remember if that was ad-libbed. I have to tell you the truth or that much. I didn't know that was coming. And it was really a riot. And they were both, I mean, Jeff had, you know, wasn't known for doing like, I think I hear him interviewed sometimes since that's what people want to talk to him about. So I don't feel so bad when I'll literally have people say, did you ever do anything else? You know, you people are, have you done anything? Have you done anything since then? Or is that, what you're most famous for, you know, and you, was that your favorite film or this and that, you know, whatever they say, and which is okay. Again, it's what I was saying before, if you did something well, I mean, Jeff was so up the and the film was so successful. I don't even know if you would call it a cult following. I've got young people now. I had parents come up to me and said, you know, I've had, well, forget about all the hockey players and athletes, but I've had people say, Excuse me, I was in a health food store the other day or something like that, and the guy comes up to me who was some kind of personal trainer, whatever he was, and he said, excuse me, sir, am I right? Were you in the best film ever made? So I said, I, I've been in films. I'm not sure which one you are, because right. I, I don't want to be a pompous guy and say, oh, of course I was in Goodfellas, or, or you know, I can never tell. I can tell a lot of times, you know, uh, but they'll say, oh, God, the greatest film, my favorite film, and uh, when, I, when we were in Maui, uh, this great Australian couple came up and he just took pictures of me and sent it everywhere, which I love doing. I get a kick out of, I don't mind that at all with photos with people now, cause, but we just, they love dumb and dumb. People love dumb and dumb around the world. I, it just seemed to, it was it catching lightning in the bottle? I mean, you had such talent on it and the Farrelly's were coming up with new stuff, as you could see. Whatever they weren't allowed to do, I guess they got to doing something <laughs> something about Mary because they really pulled out all the stops, you know? 
and Bobby would tell me, oh, I wish we could have done this. We wanted to do that. You know, they didn't want us to do it, you know. And I don't know if it would have had the same appeal with the kids that it had if they would have gotten to do some of They were really, Peter Farley would prank me, call me up, you know, uh, the fake voice and names, you know, ask me to keep it down in the room, this and that. You know, we had this whole name. put on this real thick uh, Boston or Rhode Island accent, you know. <laughs> but I love things like, you know, so many things people get, like, uh, you know, me smiling when I have to hitch and say, uh, I'm a salesman in Davenport or I'm headed to Davenport. <laughs> I'm from Davenport. And uh, he says, yeah, well, I usually don't pick hitchhikers, but I'm going to go with my instincts on this. Like, I know I'd go from rags to riches If you would only say you care And though my pocket may be empty I'd be a millionaire My clothes may still be torn and tattered But in my heart I'd be a king Your love is all that ever mattered It's Tell me you're mine evermore Must I forever be a beggar Whose golden dreams will not come true Or will I go from rags to riches My fate is up to you I forever be a beggar Whose golden dreams will not come true Or will I go from rags to return My fate is up 